Well, let's turn to God's word this morning, uh, to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you're turning, we'll welcome our guests that are watching online. The sermon is still being live cast, so we're thankful for you joining us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, our text continues from last week, this prologue to this important letter in the New Testament, this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And we're looking at verses 8 through 11, and we'll, we'll put it in its context to bring us up to speed. From God's holy word, through the Apostle Paul, to the church. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Thus we read in God's holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen and amen. Well, we are uh, speaking of matters of life and death in the life of the Apostle Paul. And he wants his readers to understand something about what uh, was the purpose of these afflictions. Perhaps we could contextualize it uh, to the summer of 2021, because a year ago at this time, we were just figuring out how to get back to public worship. As COVID had hit in the spring of 2020, and our first reaction at the news of a pandemic was to close everything down and isolate and And then we kind of got a grip and then things could open a little bit about a year ago. It was a great affliction. Many people died. Many people's livelihoods were interrupted and and all sorts of other difficulties came along. Some self-produced. Why? Why all that affliction unleashed on the world? Why that affliction unleashed, uh, unleashed on Christians? Does God have purposes in the things he does, especially those hard things that we don't like to go through? 2 Corinthians is a letter, and this paragraph in particular address suffering. They address affliction like nowhere else in the Bible. If you want to have a biblical view of suffering, this prologue from verse 3 to 11 is golden. It's where you want to meditate We saw last week that Paul gave the first purpose that God has in in giving afflictions is so that he might comfort us and then help us to comfort others. That's one of God's purposes in afflictions. Here, as we continue in verse 8 and following, Paul gets specific and he refers to a tremendous affliction, a near-death moment for him and some of God's other purposes for that. 
One reason we read the Bible, one reason we preach the Bible, is to understand who God is and how he operates. What is he doing in the world and what is he doing in those who believe and how are we to respond? The Bible gives us all we need for life and godliness. The Bible not only gives us an understanding of how to escape hell and achieve heaven, but it helps us every step of the way. And in this world, we have tribulation. If you become a Christian and you're following Christ, sorry, but you still have afflictions and sufferings. That's our course in the world. But as we have many afflictions, all our afflictions are opportunities for the God of all comfort to be at work in our lives. I think we need to start by looking at what Paul tells us here in verse 8 and 9 about this deadly peril. That it's a very real danger here. Now, Paul had been through many afflictions. In the previous paragraph, he just referred to them in general, sufferings, afflictions, unpleasant things for living as a Christian. Later in the letter, he's actually going to give a list. And he's not boasting. In fact, he thinks it's almost a shame that he has to bring those up. But Paul had seen a lot. I don't know if you call that his, his apostolic resume or his, his Christian uh, vitae, uh, the, the bona fides of his sufferings for Christ. Let's take a look at that list. We'll get there eventually, but it's in chapter 11. Don't you love long letters? You get lots of information. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let's just begin in verse 23 and see this list that Paul will later give us of the many afflictions he's had. He says in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Wow. Often near death. Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and he obviously survived. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. As we mentioned last week, perhaps in the history of humanity, no human being suffered physically as much as the Apostle Paul. I I think he has fair claim to that title. We, we don't know the life of everyone who suffered. So he's had these afflictions and sufferings in general, but it seems here, back in chapter 1, he, he's talking about one particular affliction. 
And he's saying this one particular affliction is instructive. Instructive. That means we're supposed to learn from it. Let's take a look. Back at verse 8. He says, we, and he's using the apostolic we as he's in the role of teaching and exhorting. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers. You Corinthians, I'm writing to you, remember this. Of the affliction we experienced in Asia. That particular trouble. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Notice how he starts out saying, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction. The word unaware comes from the Greek word uh, agnosto. You might think of the English word agnostic, someone who might be generally aware, but not informed, kind of on the fence, not sure what it means, if it's true. He says, I don't want you to be that way. You Corinthians, you know me, I've been weak and afflicted, and you've picked on me for that. He's going to go into that later. He says, do you really understand how God works? I don't want you to be ignorant. He points to the lessons to be learned from hardship, not dismissing hardship. Oh, I don't think we'll invite that preacher back. He's pretty weak. He's not very strong. He's not very impressive. All he had was this record of hardship. We're not going to invite him back. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians or us to view hardships of the Christian life with our eyes closed. Just be ignorant. I'm not going to look at that. He points to the lessons. Now it's interesting, he uses the definite article here, the affliction we experienced in Asia. He refers to it, but he doesn't name it. And he's explicit, but he's not very graphic. He says it was serious, and he he describes it, but he doesn't name it. And the consensus of scholars is we don't know exactly which of the events of Paul's life he's referring to here. Isn't it crazy that there there are multiple possibilities where he was near death? He's referring to one, and, and some surmise that he doesn't name it in his letter because the Corinthians may already know what he's referring to. And so he doesn't have to name it in particular. You know, this isn't his first letter to the Corinthians. It isn't his first contact. Uh, What could this peril be? Well, some people think it was uh, uh, that uh, um, it was a health crisis, perhaps. We knew he had uh, some thorn in his flesh. And some people surmise it was an eye difficulty. And maybe he couldn't see and and nearly... uh, killed himself it doesn't seem to fit the word for troubled and and the level of fear here Paul doesn't use this term when he talks elsewhere about health perhaps it was a riot like in Ephesus Um, do you remember that Paul was uh, encountered by an angry mob and maybe they had clubs or whatever they could pick up a brick or a rock and in the last year we've seen angry mobs on our television And some have seen them up close. You don't want that angry mob angry at you and near you. 
But Paul faced that. In fact, as we know from his list, he faced one situation where Jews so angry with him proclaiming Jesus Christ that they stoned him. They picked up stones to kill him by stoning. And he survived. I don't know how you survived that. Hitting him in the head with stones, in the stomach, in the face, in the back. Stoning. And he survived. We don't know if it was a riot or a severe attack of persecution. That's where I lean towards, and many commentators lean, that it was some act of persecution. One said, some explosive instant of persecution. And it had a physical component. He thought his life was ending. And it had a spiritual component. It shook him. It pressed him beyond his strength. It burdened him. Uh, and, and the word there is like a cargo ship that's a little over full in the cargo hold. And the water's up to the gunnels. And, and you think, this is dangerous. He was crushed. He was burdened. He was full. The descriptions of it tell us that it was a real danger and a real peril. He despaired of life. He said it was like a life sentence. Is like landing on death row, said one observer. And even though we don't know the particular event, it's instructive because Paul's going to tell us about it. And he tells us that he was delivered from this real danger and peril. He despaired of life and he's delivered. I think his first deliverance was that he didn't give way to despair completely. Later on, he'll talk how they were, he was crushed, but he did not despair. There's, a, there's a, a feeling and temptation of despair in the body, but in the spirit, Paul never lost hope. And we'll, we'll talk about that in chapter 4 and elsewhere. But he says, it was this bad, but I was delivered. Let's look at verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. And uh, see if you can count. You can use your fingers if you want. How many times he talks about being delivered. Verse 10. He, referring to God, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He was delivered. Delivered by who? Well, it says at the end of verse 9, by God who raises the dead. Who did he trust in? He trusted in the Lord who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul had met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He knew what was possible. He persecuted Christians, but then he met Jesus. Oh boy, you're alive. God raised you from the dead. It's true then. And Paul's life was changed. Not only was Paul delivered from his sin on the Damascus Road, here as he's serving Christ and he's in danger, real danger, he's delivered. By the Lord who has power over life and death. We don't know the particulars. Remember that stoning? Maybe Paul, maybe his heart stopped. And everyone walked away thinking he was dead. And the Lord resuscitated him. We don't know. But Paul knows that the God he serves is the God who raises the dead. And so what does he do with that power? Verse 10 says three times, he delivers 
There's one there that's in a past tense. You notice that, right? He delivered us from such a deadly peril. That's Paul's testimony. God delivered me. But God's not done. The other two references are to the future, the near future, and then the ultimate future. Paul knows that God will continue to help him in this life, and at the end of life, he will be delivered into glory. There's wonderful evidence here that Paul sees the power of God at work in the past, the present, and the future. And this term deliver is what every Christian should have on his mind. It's something we should pray about every day, even before the trouble comes. Was it not our Lord who taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? The same verb here. It's interesting when people are asked to describe God, what does God do? Well, God loves God loves people. God executes justice. We often don't get till far down on the list that God delivers. Our God is a, no, a rescue hero. God has a, a way to beat 911 every time. He's present in every crisis. He's with his people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have the power to raise the dead, so cast your life into my hands. I don't know what Jonah was thinking when he says, I'm I'm the reason you're suffering the storm and your lives will be spared if you throw me overboard. He was throwing himself into the hands of God. Our God delivers. Our God is a deliverer. And don't just think of the day of your conversion where you were set free from your sins. Oh, I remember the joy. When I prayed to receive Christ and I I could actually feel change come through me. And although it was maybe 12.30, 1.30 in the morning, I called my best friend, Ron. Ron, Ron, pick up the phone. Guess what? This is the day before texting or emails. Oh, yeah? Okay. Hi, Dave. I'll talk to you in the morning. Delivered. Delivered. You're through the worst of it. That's our God. Three times in verse 10, Paul is emphasizing that. He doesn't want Christians to be ignorant. When you suffer for Christ, when you are afflicted for living the Christian life, that's the context, God delivers. I was a bit surprised when the senior statesman of pastors, Kent Hughes, preaching this text, pointed out that the primary application for this is regarding Christian ministry, or when you are Serving the Lord Jesus Christ, living the Christian life. If you're afflicted because you were a chain smoker and you get lung cancer, that's not what the Lord's talking about here. If you're arrested for drunk driving or if you've brought some other harm on yourself. This text is talking about suffering for the name of Christ. And so this was my surprise when Kent Hughes says, to the non-committed believer who goes with the flow of culture, who risks nothing for Christ and therefore does not share in Christ's sufferings, there is no application of this text. There is no comfort of God for them. Wow. Uh, do Do I share that quote? I'm not here to judge who's serving Christ and who's not. The Lord does. 
He knows whether you're being good and faithful or you're burying your talent in the ground. But I guess to discharge my responsibility from this text, as the Spirit prompts me to say it, God will not comfort you if you just want to conform to the culture. And if it doesn't go well, there's no comfort for you. But if you're following Christ, if all on the altar I lay, and you say no to culture, you stand for Christ when others make other choices, you believe the truth, you practice your faith, and you're afflicted, God will meet you with comfort every time. Let's not take Bible verses out of context and make them a butler for our domestic happiness. I saw a quote on social media, whether it was Instagram or Facebook, it all blurs together after a while. Tweeting your face on your pictures. And the quote was this, he says, a lot of Christians aren't suffering these days because they're not living for Christ. Paul was delivered from real danger, real peril, because he was really serving Christ. And God was blessing that service, that life. Much to think about there, but we press on. The second heading this morning that we want to talk about are these purposes that Paul points to. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. These horrible things were happening to me. I was near death, but I was delivered. Do you see in verse 9 how he gives the clue? to why this was happening. And the great theological word, but, is a clue. But, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. That's really the second purpose of God in our suffering. We saw last week in the previous paragraph, God's first purpose was to comfort us, and so equip us to comfort others. That famous verse, if you knew our our former elder, John Foringer, now with the Lord, he loved that verse. He had a tender way. He, He would meet and pray with women who had gone through a divorce and others in a crisis. They would particularly seek out a quiet, mannered gentleman, and he would comfort them. Not everybody knows how he had all that comfort to give, but he had his own difficulties. But that's God's purpose. The second purpose, the first purpose is to comfort and to help make us comforters. The second purpose is here in verse 9. To get us to rely less on self and more on God. And there'll be a third purpose before we're done. Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant. God has purposes in the difficulties of our lives. Christian, this second purpose is that You do not rely on yourself. I love that that the Bible's pretty clear, not only to present the goal, but to help get us untangled from something that distracts from the goal. The goal is to rely on God. Well, to rely on God, you've got to get untangled from self, right? If you're going to do things God's way, you've got to set down your blueprint for your own life and your own way of operating. Christian, don't rely on yourself. That word rely means uh, to be sure, to be confident. 
It's used in Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this. I'm confident of this. I rely on this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was relying on God in Philippians 1.6. That verse that my parents always put at the bottom of the letters when they wrote to me in college. Philippians 1.6. Christian, don't rely on yourself. Don't build up your self-confidence so that you sail independently of the Lord. Because he might just add to your cargo and draw you back to himself. As George Guthrie says, severe crises have a way of putting life and our limited resources into perspective. Oh yeah. The phone rings in the middle of the night. Alarm swells within you. A crisis has a way of putting you at God's disposal. We pray more. We search the scriptures more. We struggle for understanding. Don't rely on yourself. There was a Christian uh, born back in the 1800s named... Annie Johnson Flint. She was born Christmas Eve, uh, 1866, down in New Jersey. Uh, She died in 1932, and she's buried in the Finger Lakes region. Amy Johnson Flint is well known for having written the lyrics to a hymn that's actually in our hymnal, and I think we're going to sing it at the end of the service. Amy Johnson uh, wrote about in her lyrics and poems her own painful and yet joyful experience of God. She was deprived of both her parents in her youth. She was an orphan. And she had hardly attained adulthood before she was so severely afflicted with arthritis that she could no longer earn a living or live independently. The pictures we have show her wheelchair bound. Having trusted Christ in her youth, she turned to her Lord in her physical afflictions and began expressing her soul in poetry. These are some of her lyrics that were put into a hymn. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His love writes this crippled woman. His love has no boundary known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth, he giveth, he giveth again. And it's the second verse that's so poignant. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, Our Father's full giving is only begun. That pinches, right? The end of our hoarded resources. I'm a guy, I've got band-aids in my briefcase, band-aids in my glove box, band-aids in my bedroom, band-aids in my office. I've got band-aids. If you need a band-aid, see me. We, we think we can cope and we get this self-confidence, especially once we're out of our, our teens and our 20s and we hit 30 and we're adults or we get married and now I'm a grown-up and I'm confident and, and it spills over into all of life and this self-confidence can begin to eclipse relying on God. 
God has a way to grow our faith and to regain our allegiance and to regain our service. He often, not always, often sends afflictions and sufferings. Christian, don't rely on yourself. Instead, as the text here in 2 Corinthians turns, rely on God. This, Paul says, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God delivers. The experience of Paul serves as an assault on self-reliance and an impetus for trusting God as the great deliverer from death. I hope we view the difficulties of our life that way. And that we rely on the Lord. Well, why would I rely on the Lord? Because he can raise the dead. Isn't that one thing? Jesus came to make the Father known. He taught. He did some miracles. And when Jesus died, he is brought back to life and welcomed into heaven. That tells you a whole lot about our God. He can raise the dead. Christian, is your life safe in his hands? Can you serve him and be at his disposal and... Disposal and follow the promptings of his spirit without fear of men? You bet you can. Jesus says to his disciples, fear not those who can kill the body. Rather, fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. We need to have our priorities right. If we've come to faith in Christ, we ought to fear, revere, love, and serve God as our Father in heaven. And let men do what they may. I belong to the Lord and you're not going to get me to play your games or to conform to your thinking. I am the Lord's. Rely on the Lord who raises the dead. It's interesting, one of the earliest church fathers, John Christostom, uh, his name is hard to say, but he was one of the most gifted preachers of the early church. They called him the Golden Mouth. John Chrysostom said, resurrection happens every day. For when God raises up again a man whose life is despaired of and who has been brought to the very gates of hell, he shows nothing other than a resurrection, snatching him from the very jaws of death, the one who had fallen into them. God's resurrecting power is not a one-trick pony. That power is at work in increments up until the last great day of our resurrection. After we've been dead and buried, God can bring body and spirit together in his presence. That's resurrection, restoring body and spirit. God can take the suffering Christian, the pastor in China, uh, the inner city church planter, the youth worker who's pulling his hair out trying to get people to know Christ. God can give power to body and spirit. Can he not? Which reminds me of another hope. Paul here said that uh, this gives him hope. Our hope is unshaken because of this power of God. Um, I forget the author. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust, I dare not rely upon the sweetest frame, me or anyone else, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. 
On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. Christ. Rely on God. God is alive and well. He's at work in the world. He cares. He's present. He's the God of all comfort. He's committed to you. If he has given us his own son, will he not with him give us all things? And I can pause here to tell you of the gospel. Because the Bible is a book of good news. Although all men have fallen into sin and out of favor with God, we're in rebellion. We're all under a death sentence for our sin. God's power resurrects men from darkness into life. People can be born again by the power of God. It's not up to you, in fact. You can't make yourself born again. God saves sinners. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The message of Christianity isn't do these things, the the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, do these things to make yourself worthy of heaven. That is not the message of the gospel. The gospel is that God saves sinners by his power. His arm is not too short to save. Your sins have separated you from God. But God sends a savior. And through the resurrection power of Jesus, raises us. The new birth. Jesus tried to explain it in John 3 to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wasn't getting it. How do I get born again and go into my mother's womb? He's scratching his head. And Jesus says, you must be born of the Spirit. You do not control the Spirit of God. Do not sit here presuming, well, someday I'll get right with God. I'm going to have some fun first. The Spirit of God, if he draws near, trust him. Follow him. By the Spirit's help, believe the gospel. Let's look at our third heading. The opportunity here for prayer and praise. This might surprise you. As Paul said, I had this near-death experience. God used it to make me rely on him. So Paul's relying on God and God's powerful deliver. What in the world is Paul asking for in verse 11? You also must help us by prayer. No, 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 wait a minute, Paul. You just said you've got an all-powerful God helping you. Why should I pray? Because that's the way God works. And it, actually, this is the third purpose that God sends afflictions and sufferings our way so that it would increase our prayer life and our prayers for those in ministry and our prayers for those under persecution. As was Paul. Paul was hopeful. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul's hope and trust was in God. But in verse 11 he extends his his hand to the Corinthians and says pray for me. You also must help us by prayer. We know our prayer list is full of people that might be near death. Physically. Our list has names of people that are spiritually dead. And God has ordained that we use prayer to help. God has all that power. Why does he need me to pray? 
God has so ordained to use the prayers of his people, to mix them into the recipe of his providence as only he understands. I was so helped by the one who said, prayer is a mystery, but it's vital. Prayer is a mystery. It's a vital prerequisite for success in ministry. Churches won't grow without prayer. Missionaries won't be able to plant churches and seek converts without prayer. You can witness to your coworker, it's going nowhere without prayer. Paul understands that God unleashes his power in response to the prayer of his people. And we can't explain the mysterious part of it, but I can tell you God commands us to pray. The apostle pleads with us to pray, and he's got that spiritual authority. He says, pray for us, help us by prayer, so that, here's another purpose clause at work, Many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. There's his theology. Blessings will come to Paul if people pray. So God's help requires the prayers of God's people. Interesting. So here's an opportunity for Paul to get these Corinthians praying for him. And it says many will be giving thanks. Do you see that in verse 11? And it's interesting that the word many there, I don't know if if your Bible is a footnote or study Bible, it's literally faces. It's one of those odd things. The word for face in, in Greek is there, so that many faces will be giving thanks. That's kind of an odd way to say that people are going to be praising God. Why why would Paul put the word faces in there? Maybe just to give pastors something to figure out in their study as they look at their Greek. But I think it's a spin because Paul sees something glorious in that. You remember, he didn't have a good relationship with these Corinthians. They're scowling at him. You're weak. Are you really an apostle, Paul? You suffer so much. Paul doesn't grapple with them head on just yet. He says, this is the way God works. My sufferings have purpose. And I can ask that you pray for me which will result in many faces lifted up to God in praise and thanks. He wants to see a change in the countenance of the Corinthians. He wants to see people that are confused about suffering in the world understand and the light bulb go off. We, we use that expression, right? Do I need to explain that to any human being in this room, a light bulb going off? Maybe that's something that Paul said faces instead. So we have an immediate image that something has changed click. Praise God for Paul's afflictions. Praise God for God's deliverance in those afflictions. We think so little about these things, people. How important it is for you to pray and to give thanks. It's how God works. Paul needed it. Pastors need it. We each need prayers of the others and that many would give thanks And notice how it ends on this uh, blessing bestowed and and the praise of God. It's the same way this prologue began back in verse 3. Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. Verse 3 is the verse to underline, isn't it? Comfort from our God. He cares. He delivers. He hears prayers. Blessed be the Lord. 
I want to end with a couple of exhortations. I tried to make them into commands, imperatives, so you can get the, the right action in your mind as we wrap up. Three things. First, seize, and then see, and then seek. Seize every opportunity to pray for ministries and missions. Seek every opportunity to pray for ministries and missions. Not, not just prayer one for another, but in the context here, Paul's ministry, the very traveling of the gospel requires the power of prayer from the saints. I believe in prayer. I have seen our prayer sheet have many requests that have been answered in the last 25 years in spectacular ways. I have even seen one whom we knew and prayed for diligently rise from his hospice deathbed. Dave Kazi. We should invite him back for a visit. God doesn't lift all the people we pray for from their deathbed. But he knows how to fuel our faith and occasionally he gives us that one spectacular answer to prayer. To say, hey, I got this if I need to. I can do this. But I have many purposes. As we pray for those who are on deathbeds, God can deliver. But let's particularly focus to pray for ministries and missions. People overseas and people near. Every week we put a mission of the week in our program, in our prayer sheet. Let's be praying for God's word to go forward. Be praying for churches that are looking for their next pastor. That's a big request. Whenever I know there's an open pulpit, I know that that's a crossroads. And if they pick the wrong leader and preacher, they could go over a cliff of destruction. Pray for churches that are looking for pastors. The second point even ties into that. See the peril of self-confidence. I, I, I know we're Americans. We want to be self-sufficient. we got that John Wayne syndrome going on. And me and my band-aids, I'm ready for what happens. But we don't want to let that infiltrate to our spiritual life, this self-confidence. We want to have a Christ confidence. We want to be Christ-centered. So beware the perils of self-confidence when it goes overboard. And this is all the more needed today in the United States. There's so much uh, uh, assent given to our strength, our preparations, our technology. But just watch it, modern men, when the power goes down or the Wi-Fi is not working. You see just a glimmer of their panic. There's a peril to self-confidence. One Preacher Paul Barnett said this, modern man is so blinded by his technology and his own sense of power that he regards prayer and thanksgiving as weak, useless, and a joke. Why should I worry about self-confidence? It will undermine your prayer life. When I'm less self-confident, I'm praying a lot more. As Sunday draws near, I'm praying a lot more. You got that right. And I know many are praying for me. You see the tension there? Reliance on self means less prayer, less praise. Doesn't that describe modern men so well? And you know what? It's infiltrated the church, too. Uh, Commentator George Guthrie said, so much of modern ministry revolves around the public presentation of our strengths 
Churches want pastors who are powerful communicators, etc., etc. Because we like self-confidence. What we need is an acceptance of experiences of suffering. We need an acceptance of weakness. And isn't it amazing how much God can do with a crooked old stick like you and me? May our confidence be in God and we beware the perils of self-confidence. Finally, seek strength in God, which is restating the main purpose here in today's paragraph. Rely on God. Rely on God. I'm going to rely on God. I'm counting on God. I'm leaning on God. I'm walking by faith with my Savior. God will not let you down. He says in chapter 12, the apostle does Repeating what he heard from the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Seek the strength and power of God through Christ by prayer every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you did through the Apostle Paul. And how you even allowed his life to be a lesson and a teachable moment for all of us. We thank you for your word explaining who you are and how you work. May we not make you jump through our hoops and wait upon us so that we can live our own way. But may we serve and be steadfast in our Christian profession knowing that you will deliver and care for us as we seek to honor you. Father, keep these things in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.